Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. common to see science and religion portrayed as mutually exclusive and warring ways of viewing the world. But is that how actual scientists see it? For that matter, which cultural factors shape the attitudes of scientists towards religion? Could scientists help show us a way to build collaboration between scientific and religious communities, if such collaborations are even possible? The book we're looking at today, Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Really Think About Religion, aims to answer these questions and more. Scholars Elaine Howard Eklund, David Johnson, Brandon Vaidyanathan, Kirsten Matthews, Stephen Lewis, Robert Thompson Jr., and Dee Dee collaborated to complete the most comprehensive international study of scientists' attitudes towards religion ever undertaken, surveying more than 20,000 scientists and conducting in-depth interviews with over 600 of them. From this wealth of data, the authors extract the real story of the relationship between science and religion in the lives of scientists around the world. The book makes four key claims. There are more religious scientists than we might think. Religion and science overlap in scientific work. Scientists, even atheist scientists, see spirituality in science. And finally, the idea that religion and science must conflict is primarily an invention of the West. Throughout, the book couples nationally representative survey data with captivating stories of individual scientists whose experiences highlight these important themes in the data. Secularity in science leaves an inaccurate assumptions about science and religion behind, offering a new, more nuanced understanding of how science and religion interact and how they can be integrated for the common good. Doctors Elaine Howard Eklund and David Johnson are joining me today to talk about the book. Eklund is a Herbert S. Autry Chair in Social Sciences and Professor of Sociology at Rice University, as well as Founding Director of the Religion and Public Life Program there. David Johnson is an Assistant Professor of Higher Education Leadership at the University of Nevada, Reno, in the College of Education. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Drs. Elaine Howard Eklund and David Johnson to talk about their book, Secularity and Science, 
what scientists around the world really think about religion. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Hi, Carrie. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for coming in. So to begin, I usually like to ask guests to tell the audience a little bit about yourselves and how you came to work in your fields. So Elaine, do you want to start? Sure. So I started studying science and religion about, uh, gosh, I'm embarrassed to say now, Carrie, maybe 15 years ago uh, when I was a PhD student in upstate New York at Cornell University. And I was working on a research project um, on family life in religious congregations. And as part of that work with my advisor at the time, I was doing interviews in churches and actually going to Bible studies. And I remember being in a local church and a woman who was attending a Bible study with me said, so what do you do for your work? I said, I'm a PhD student at Cornell University. And she said, yuck, I wouldn't want my kid to go to Cornell. And I was like, oh, man, like, what's wrong with this woman? <laughs> you know, did she like, was she want her kid to go to Harvard instead or something? Um, most people think of Cornell as a pretty good school. And so I kind of pressed her and she said, well, I wouldn't want my kid to go to Cornell because I'm afraid that they might meet scientists there who would take them away from their faith. And it's kind of like uh, one of those experiences where a little light goes off. And I started to think, I mean, I wasn't into studying the stuff at all at this at that point, but I started thinking, is that really true? Um, I've had all these science classes in my background. Scientists didn't really seem hostile to religion. Is it true that scientists are kind of out to eat young Christian children for lunch? I mean, what, what could be going on here? And that kind of started a research journey for me where I started being curious about scientists' attitudes towards religion and ended up doing a U.S.-based, um, my first study, on that topic, um, which resulted in the book Science Versus Religion, What Scientists Really Think. Um, but I'll let David David chime in. Uh, sure. So my longtime interest has been in how people derive meaning from the work that they do. So I, I do work in a, a program that focuses on how universities work, but fundamentally I'm a sociologist of work and organizations. And my doctoral work focused on the rise of a profit motive in the production of knowledge. Um, and it's incidentally part of the reason how I ended up working with Elaine on this project. The, the book that resulted from that uh, dissertation is in many respects an examination of synergies and tensions that arise in the relationship between science and capitalism. While the study that we worked on in my postdoc, the Religion Among Scientists International Context Study, is similarly looking at uh, a different institution, the relationship between science and religion. So they share in common a concern for relationships between important social institute, institutions. And incidentally, I also um, studied abroad as an undergrad and speak French, and that was one of the uh, qualifiers for the job is that you needed to speak more than one language. And as a result, even though I didn't study religion in the past, it's now one of the sort of fundamental fundamental dimensions of my research agenda. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Um, you've already alluded to it somewhat how this book kind of came together, but you also have a fairly large team uh, of people working together on this book. So could you tell us a little bit more about how that happened? It's funny that so most for most people, seven authors does strike people as a large number for a book. When you say a co-authored book, you usually don't mean seven, you mean two. Um, but these seven folks were really involved. 
but our actual larger team is like a hundred. Isn't that crazy? Um, yeah. So um, this is this project has um, eight different uh, national cases, and there are different languages involved. So David mentioned that he speaks French, so we did part of our study in France, and so we needed a French speaker. And it's like at every turn with a study this large where you, we did uh, 22,000 surveys and we did over 600 in-depth interviews resulting in 10,000 pages of transcribed materials. At every turn, you realized you had, there was an expertise missing on the team. Um, and so these folks that author the book, really each of them has a very particular kind of expertise, either in area studies about a particular national case, um, in background in terms of um, David's expertise in the study of science and in universities was extraordinarily important. Um, Brandon's particular expertise in the study of India, and I could go on. Um, and so our, our, our other team was so much larger, <laughs> um, but it was a really fun project. And these seven people formed the core of the team. Um, Kirsten Matthews and Stephen Lewis um, were partners on the original grant, and then the others did significant writing in the actual book. And so we needed all those folks to carry out such a large study and then write up a book that was so comprehensive. And in some ways, it's it presents comical challenges. Like we had back and forth with Oxford University Press about just how exactly we were going to fit names on the cover with good art. Uh, but then on, on, on the other hand, it it's, it's really an asset to the work because when you have seven key authors on a book, you immediately have uh, different philosophical perspectives, different types of expertise, and it really uh, ensures that you stay true to what the, the empirical findings that underscore the data actually are. So it was uh, uh, very much an asset to have such a large team. And think about the book as being a, I, I don't know if this is what you're saying, Dave, but it's sort of like I think about the book as being especially well vetted because every chapter needed to be vetted by not just one or two authors, but exactly. by, by seven. It's like an internal form of peer review before you send it to anybody else. Yeah. And I think when you're comparing that many different cultures, um, that's a really valuable asset. So you're not approaching, um, you know, non-Western cultures from a particularly Western lens or something like that. And that's something we were especially sensitive to. Excellent. All right. Well, you begin by addressing the question of why it might be important to learn about the various perspectives of scientists from around the world on the relationship between science and religion. So what were some of the gaps in knowledge that you identified? Um, a lot. <laughs> sort of, we don't really know where to start, but some things that come to mind, and you process if there are other things you want to know more about, Carrie. But most of the stuff on science and religion is outside of sociology. You've had some great interviews, actually, on this very show with people, with historians and philosophers. And that's where most of the science and religion connection literature lies. There is comparatively less literature on what everyday people think about science and religion. And when I give talks on this stuff, um, which I have you know, over 100 times now, if it's a multidisciplinary audience, one of the first things that they often say, if historians and philosophers say, well, we have solved that, right? Like we have, there's no inherent conflict between science and religion. It's over. You know, why are you studying it? And I always say, you know, if you look around the U.S. in particular, if you read the news, um, 
this is news to people that this has been solved, that even though um, there may not be an inherent conflict between science and religion, it shows up in modern day people's lives as a conflict and therefore it's real in its consequences, right? It has an impact on education in the school systems and in national policy and these kinds of things. So partly the, the huge sort of meta gap is bringing sociology to the table to look at how people think about things in their own terms. In this case, scientists' attitudes towards religion, so how scientists themselves in these different national contexts think about things in their own terms. And then I think most of the literature that is in sociology has been in the U.S. national context, um, because it's, it's sometimes a kind of a fraught context between um, certain groups of scientists and certain groups of religious people. And so we don't really, really to take that outside of the national context. Um, I'm sure David will have lots to add, but one sort of side story that's coming to mind is for my first study on science and religion, the one I alluded to of scientists' attitudes towards religion in the U.S. I remember interviewing um, a U.S. scientist who said, uh, you know, you're asking me if there's a conflict between religion and science, and that's kind of a stupid question. I actually love interviewing scientists because they totally feel free to interrogate the questions. Like other groups of people don't, you know, say like, I don't like your question. (laughs) But this guy was like, I don't like your question. You know, why are you asking me if there's a conflict? That's a question that a Western researcher would ask. And he is an immigrant scientist to the U.S. from a Hindu culture where he did not think that there was any kind of conflict between science, religion, so much so that it seemed like a stupid question to even ask. And I think I, I shared that story with David, and we talk about that story in our in our book, Secularity and Science. And that kind of got us thinking, you know, is this Hindu scientist's experience true of other scientists and other cultures? And just what might putting national variation into this whole discussion bring to the table. And an important part of, of focusing the, the sort of overwhelming, overwhelming focus on the United States is it, it means that most of the conversation taking place is about Christianity. And so by broadening our lens to, uh, to Western Europe and South Asia and other parts of the world, we can start to not only understand what the relationship between science and religion looks like in other religions, we can also compare them by using the exact same questions to what, uh, how, how this differs across different national contexts. Another limitation of existing work out there is the tendency to focus on famous people or elite scientists. So you will often find um, someone like Stephen Jay Gould's personal view on the relationship between science and religion. Or if it's in survey research, you see a tendency to focus on fellows of the Royal Society or members of the National Academies of Science. And and even if I may critique my colleague Elaine in her first book on this, she focused exclusively on the top 20 schools in the United States. And and that's a limitation because, um, A, there might be different patterns that take place if you're looking at my alma mater, the University of Southern Mississippi versus Harvard. and, and B, um, I sort of lost my second point there, but the, the, the broader point is, is that we need to look at places that are not exclusively the elite universities. And then another final sort of gap that is out there is to not look at scientists in training. And this isn't just true in the literature on the relationship between science and religion. This is true in a lot of work 
in the sociology of scientific work to only focus on um, people once they have their faculty positions. And, and one of the benefits of studying people in training is, is that they might differ in important ways. They might not feel like academe is hospitable to them, for example, if they have religious beliefs. And so this study was really an extraordinary effort to expand the scope of research on science and religion. And already we see, uh, while we think of ourselves as filling these gaps, we already see work that's starting to follow in this area. Oh, fascinating. So maybe tell us next how you decided to approach researching the answers to these questions. Well, we're sociologists, as I said, and so we take certainly take history into consideration, but we're most interested in contemporary people. So um, we uh, wanted to do some kind of study where we could ask the same types of questions of people across national contexts. So we started with a survey. And uh, surveys are really cool because they allow us to ask the same questions of everyone. So they help us achieve what's called comparability where we're trying to figure out, say, what religion means to people in these different national contexts by asking the same questions about religion of everyone. But we also were very concerned about what scholars call issues of validity. So um, religion means vastly different things to people in different national contexts. And so we didn't want to assume that scientists would mean the same things um, about these very, very difficult matters in, the, in these different national contexts. And so to that end, um, as I like to tell people, we got on planes and trains and in automobiles, and um, I'm dating myself a little bit. Um, and we asked people, you know, face to face what they thought about the importance or not um, in their lives. So we went into scientist labs in, in Turkey and in India, for example, um, and we got to know people in the different national contexts that we studied. And I, I just have to step back and say, I can't stress how unusual this is for uh, a type of sociological study. I, you know, we were joking earlier about what it means to have seven authors on a book. Um, but most work in sociology is not international comparative. And so to develop a project where you're sending teams of researchers around the world and looking at existing questions that are on surveys and trying to, to make sense of the best approach is highly unusual, and it's actually beneficial. A lot of the, the other papers that we work on from this are unforeseen because we can disseminate useful information to other sociologists about just how you go about doing a project like this, for example. And I'm sure, Carrie, after they listen to this, everyone will run out and buy the book, Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Really Think About Religion. But for the one Oxford or two University people. Press. Yes, yes, they will. <laughs> For the one or two people who don't, I thought it might be. Um, I, Dave just if you um, just cued something for me that I wanted to riff off from. I don't think we've mentioned yet the um, national and regional context that we studied, and so it's France, the United Kingdom, United States, Hong Kong, Italy, Taiwan, Turkey, and India. So France, U.S., U.K., Hong Kong, Italy, Taiwan, Turkey, and India. And I mentioned that here. Because um, there, you can just imagine even traveling to those different places um, was costly, um, took particular kinds of skills, right, um, in terms of lingual differences. And so our team needed to be very complex and adaptable to pull off a study so large. And we didn't know how to do it in the beginning. 
And so we had to adapt a whole lot as we went along. So it required, I mean, um, Dave's a remarkably flexible human being, and it required like a very flexible people on this research team to be able to pull off this study where you didn't mind getting lost <laughs> or, you, or you didn't mind encountering something that was difficult and you just kind of were able to flex and move on. Well, I want to ask you next about your choices there, Um, because you mentioned uh, in chapter two, where you kind of go into more detail about your methodology, you explain why you chose to focus on physicists and biologists specifically, as well as why you chose those particular cultural contexts that you just mentioned. So maybe you can explain that. Dave, do you want to go ahead about the physics and biology? Sure. So first and foremost, uh, physics and biology are our core scientific disciplines. And we might even say that uh, there's a prestige hierarchy in science and uh, physics is at the top in most people's views and biology is somewhere uh, uh, soon thereafter. And that's a whole other debate. But if, you, if, the, if the idea is you want to study what real life scientists actually think about religion, physics and biology are an important place to start or a good place to start. They also are important because they have um, what we might call epistemological tensions or different relationships with religion and religious communities. And in physics, this would be in the explanations of the origins of the universe or the age of the earth. And in biology, this would be in explanations of the origins of mankind. And so if there are many different ways we can think about the relationship between science and religion, but if we're interested in the conflict narrative, then these two disciplines might be an important place to start compared, with, let's say, with sociology, which uh, may not have as immediate sort of connection as these two. And then another important aspect of these disciplines is that they have different proportions of women in them. And uh, there's a lot of uh, research in sociology that shows that women are more likely to be religious than men. And so we might expect differences in a discipline like biology, which has um, an approaching equal or let's say relatively high representation of women compared to a field like physics that has, um, let's say, exceedingly low uh, proportions of women. And those are the main reasons for the disciplines. Why don't you talk about the countries a little bit, Elaine, and I can hop in. Sure, uh, sure. Um, the only other thing I wanted to, to say about discipline, just from a practical matter, um, it's, it's sort of like airing your dirty laundry to talk about the practical aspects of research, I find. <laughs> um, you know, you can't, but you can't like do a study if it can't be done is sort of an obvious thing to say. And physics and biology are present in different nations. And so, you know, some disciplines are not present in, in a wide variety of nations. But if you're going to set up, you know, a science infrastructure in a particular nation, you probably will set up physics and biology as two of the first disciplines. So I just wanted to point that out there. It occurred to me as you're talking, Dave. Thanks. Um, so in terms of different national contexts, I'll start by saying um, along the, the laundry theme that we could have studied lots of other national contexts as well. So these were not um, you know, necessarily the final list of national contexts we could have studied to get at these issues. They are a very defensible list of national contexts. So these national and regional contexts have um, science infrastructure in each of the disciplines that we were interested in. So they all have biology and physics. So that was uh, something that needed to be a given. 
there's variation in religion of the general population of each of these national contexts. So we wanted to look at religious differences. And so we tried to pick a collection of nations where there is variation in religious contexts. Along those lines, in each of the national contexts, there is um, differences in, in the relationship between religion and the state. You know, we think of the U.S. as having a separation of state and church. We think of the United Kingdom as having a state church. We think of um, France as being avidly secular. We think of um, India as having more of a religious pluralism in its state infrastructure. So, so there's sort of differences in the state infrastructure as well. And these were also national contexts where um, we had some kind of contact or we could figure out how to study the national context. If you look at the list that I just mentioned of these national contexts, there are some regions of the world that are noticeably absent. I mean, we did not include the global south, which um, it's not that we were looking intentionally to leave out the global south, but we see this study as a first step, um, which other researchers might pick up and continue or we ourselves might continue. And next, we would want to go to the global south as places which would be very important to study in the global scientific infrastructure. And the other thing that I would add on to this, um, sort of circling back to the size of our team and just how you make a project like this go, um, is that we, when Elaine said that we had a team of 100 people, maybe 20 of those were two different boards of scientific advisors, uh, one of which was comprised of social scientists from each of these regions. And then the other larger board was comprised of physical and natural scientists in each of these regions who uh, helped consult on this. And part of the reason uh, that something like this is so challenging is you just can't hop on a plane um, and figure out where to go and, and start knocking on doors of scientists asking them to participate <laughs> in an interview. Um, nor can you be sure that if you look on a website that you can actually identify all the universities in a given country. And, and the point that I want to make here is that we spent a lot of time thinking about, well, how is it that we can generate a nationally representative sample in each of these contexts? And, and the short of it, I don't want to bore your audience with it, is that we use publications um, in uh, physics and biology and randomly selected programs according to their, their, their um, level of publication and then randomly selected scientists from within each of these programs to participate in the survey. So all of that to say that we had a lot of choices to make aside from just which disciplines to focus on, which countries to focus on, and some of the most important ones or how can we do this in the most empirically rigorous fashion possible? Wow. Now, if, you're re if your listeners want to be bored with the methodological details, <laughs> I find myself actively flipping through our book so I don't get this wrong. But Dave, it looks like between page 207 and about 270 is um, our methodological appendix. <laughs> so they could read 70 pages about that if what we said just piqued their interest. If you have insomnia. <laughs> 
the well, rest of the book is absolutely scintillating, though. That's right. <laughs> true. That's true. It's true. There's a lot of interviews in there, and they are fascinating. So uh, I don't know if if any of you, if you will remember some of them in detail as we go. But um, all right, let's jump into the United States. That's uh, that's the first area that you get into detail with, and. Um, and this is where where I think we would all guess that we'd perhaps find the most adversarial relationship between the advocates of scientific thought and religious belief, or at least in public discourse, as you discovered at church. Um, so what did you find when you took a more nuanced look? Elaine, why don't you handle that? Sure. <laughs> we, we did... Um... We did find some conflict. Um, so we did find some conflict. But perhaps I'll lead with this. Um, we found that when we ask scientists directly whether they think that there is a conflict between science and religion, that only 29% think there is a conflict. 51% think that the two realms are independent, and the rest think that there can be a collaboration between the two or don't want to answer the question. So um, so 51, so over 50% think that these two realms, like the late um, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould termed it, they are non-overlapping magisteria. These are different kinds of realms that um, answer different questions about about the world. And so I think that's really useful for the public to know. I think the public's, um, if we are to believe other studies, some of, some of my own work as well, the public believes that scientists think that there's a conflict, an inherent conflict between science and religion, like that woman in the, in the church that I studied so many years ago. Yeah, I would say for me also as a scholar of higher education, this is one of the most sort of fascinating uh, gaps in public understanding is that um, many people in the religious community of the United States, States think that, that universities are hostile to religious belief and that scientists themselves are anti-religious. Uh, so if that's the caricature of science, scientists, uh, it's, it's quite interesting to find that only 28% of scientists actually think that there is a conflict between science and religion. So there's a sort of gap. Um, and and those, 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 those views are consequential. For example, how you think about whether or not you might send your child to a university, for example. It's, mm -hmm. I think, I love the word nuanced. It's actually one of my favorite words, um, hence why I'm a researcher. Um, but <laughs> I do think where the, where the nuance is, is that scientists also do have some stereotypes about religion and religious people. Um, you know, religious people um, believe some of the news about scientists where the loudest voices get a hearing. And um, scientists likewise believe some of the things that they hear in the public discourse where the loudest religious voices um, get a hearing. And so that means if scientists are not personally religious, that they don't have their own experiences to draw on or they haven't studied religion extensively, they may have a restricted vocabulary about religion. So they, we found in our interviews with them that they tend to think of religion as evangelicalism, and they also tend to think of um, American evangelical Christianity as a being a bit narrow, narrower than it really is, you know, thinking that all evangelical Christians are sort of against science, that there aren't any scientists who are evangelical Christians, that kind of thing. Um, 
there we also found that certain religious traditions are a bit underrepresented in science. So certain forms of Christianity are underrepresented in science, meaning that there's a much lower proportion of those people in science than is present in the general population. And so that makes it a bit easier to stereotype because as a scientist, you're not rubbing shoulders with people um, who are religiously different than you as much. And for those who are in science, um, who are, um, say, traditional Christians, um, who are Muslims, um, they do sometimes feel like um, science is an assumed secular atmosphere. They feel hesitant to talk about their religion publicly, and that kind of makes the stereotype more entrenched. It's never really addressed because people kind of practice a secret religiosity in science sometimes. Yeah, it's sort of an interesting... um inverse relationship here, where if you read about atheists in the United States, one of the most common things that people will point out is that being an atheist um, is, uh, there's a stigma in the United States for being non-religious. Yet in U.S. universities, uh, this is not at all the case. And it's more likely that if you're religious in the United States, in a university, you're you're less likely to bring it up because you're the one who, who might be thought of as having a stigma in this environment. And in a lot of the ways in which U.S. scientists encounter religion in universities is in their undergraduate classes more than anywhere else with students uh, bringing up questions about evolution and things to that effect. And um, so the main place, in contrast to other countries where a lot of U.S. scientists get their ideas about what religious people are like, Uh, is from the news and the media narrative um, and to a certain extent from their undergraduate students. And and the reason why this is important that they're not necessarily getting it from their colleagues is because having a religious colleague uh, has a certain normalizing effect on how you think about uh, religion. And and sociologists call this the the contact hypothesis, that the less interaction that you have with uh, someone from a different social group, the more likely you are to have uh, erroneous uh, assumptions about them and hold prejudices towards them. And so one of the things that we find in places, including the U.S. and also the U.K., is that if you're a scientist who trained under a very well-known physicist or biologist who just so happens to be religious, and you know that about them, you're less likely to actually think that science and religion are in conflict with one another because you've met somebody that you you esteem and that you look up to who um, for whom it's not a conflict themselves. Right. Um, yeah, that, that kind of gets to um, the section. You have a section in each of your chapters where you look at um, the experiences and academic lives of the scientists themselves, like how this debate does or doesn't interact in the workplace. Um, so do you think that the, uh, the labs, the laboratories, the workplaces of American scientists are similar to those of the universities then? Can you say that again? Um, in each of your chapters, you have a look at um, the, uh, the, whether or not there's a conflict between uh, science and religion it experienced within the workplaces right. of scientists. Oh. And so I'm wondering if, um, like you're saying that, you know, there's this normalizing effect of, of being around people that have religious ideas or different ones from you. Um, 
in the university campus atmosphere. Is it similar in the laboratories in America then? Or is there much of this, you know, perceived conflict in the laboratories? Well, go ahead, Lane. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Um, so in this book, we were primarily um, looking at scientists in university contexts and in research institutes. So these um, folks were pretty heavily centered around universities. But in another study I've done, we looked at scientists outside of universities. Um, I did a a broader project, I think I alluded to it earlier, um, that resulted in a book called Religion Versus Science, What Religious People Really Think with Christopher Scheidel. And in that study, we looked at what we call everyday scientists, uh, not exactly a perfect phrase, but scientists who work outside of universities. And we found that they um, tend to be pretty religiously similar to the general public. And so perhaps have even less conflict and um, are more likely to interact with scientists who are religious. So there are many more religious scientists in those environments. And universities being public institution, there's probably a stronger norm of, of secularism and not bringing up religion compared to other environments in which scientists might work. Okay. All right. Um, let's move on to the United Kingdom then. Uh, you characterize it as one of the most secular countries you studied with the most uh, what you call outsider antagonism, as well as having a complex history with regards to the relationship between religion and science. So tell us about this context in terms of the public's views versus the views of the scientific community. That's another one of those nuanced places. Um, so there is a, a context outside of science where and there's been wonderful histories written of the UK um, by historians of science, uh, which we quote from their work mightily. I don't want to say anyone out loud for fear of missing someone. Um, But there is a sense where the state church in England, at least, and of course, um, in the broader UK, we have the Scotland's, um, the Scottish church, um, where there is a sense that religion is usual and, and usual in public places in a way that it's not, there's not quite the same sense in the U.S. And so um, that's there and has an impact within science in, you know, Christian rituals, for example, are very familiar to U.K. scientists, even if they themselves um, resoundingly reject Christianity, if that makes sense. So they know, we always say about atheist scientists in the U.K. that they know a whole lot about the God they're rejecting. <laughs> um, where Then the other hand, so that's one kind of sense about the content of religion in the UK. And the other hand, there's a lot of immigration. And when people migrate, they bring their religious traditions with them, of course. Um, There there has been an increase in Islam um, in the UK, although still only about four, depending on different surveys that you look at, say four to six percent of the UK population is Muslim. So not a huge percentage, but some of that has come through immigration. And in the minds of scientists, it's very much tied to immigration. And there's also a public discussion in the UK about the effect that Islam might have on science. Um, Some of those who call themselves the new atheists who have, um, you know, very publicly talked about Islam in relationship to science. So that's all going on in the minds of the scientists um, that we interviewed And so in one sense, they're friendly towards religion, but they have a kind of antagonism 
um, towards um, just an, or sort of um, even if antagonism is too strong of a word, a deep concern about the impact that religion might have on the science infrastructure itself. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay. And, uh, you all, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, the, one of the main things I was just going to say also is that for us, before we started the study, we, we saw France and the UK as the most secular environments uh, in which the study was taking place. And so we assumed before collecting any data that the conflict uh, hypothesis would be highest there. And in the UK, about 43% of scientists are atheists, about 25% are agnostic, and the remainder have some form of re religious belief. But and, and it's in this country that the conflict view is at its highest but it's only 35% of scientists in, in the UK uh, indicate that they think that the relationship between science and religion is one of conflict. And that's, and, and I sort of just, personally, I thought it might be higher there given just how secular, uh, just how non-religious the scientists are. Um, and I just wanted to sort of offer in that, that big picture view of, of how the context that Elaine described plays out in what people actually think about religion. And so you have both of it going on. I mean, Carrie, it was just so, the UK context was so hard for us to figure out at first, which is why we ended up calling, um, you know, the, that, that chapter subtitle is New Atheists and Dangerous Muslims, because there's, there's one sense where um, scientists are very friendly. I'm, I'm flipping through the book and I just found this interview with a UK scientist who was raised in an Anglican, part of the broader Anglican communion, yet is not personally religious now. And he says, you grow up in a society that shapes your viewpoint and this country has an established religion. And every day when he went to school, he said we, it was started with an act of Christian worship and growing up, you just understood that's the setup. He was incredibly positive about religion. He was would not be someone that you think of as particularly negative about religion. And then in other places, you know, we have scientists saying that the influence of Islam on science is dangerous. They're concerned about the number of Muslims in science, even though in reality, only, um, correct me if I'm wrong here, Dave, but only 2% of the scientists that we surveyed were Muslims. So it, it's like they had a kind of outsized impact. Um, the sentiment about Islam and science in the UK had an outsized impact. And then, um, of course, there is a lot of discussion about atheism publicly in the UK. And you find scientists there responding in quite different ways to Islamic students. I remember an interview I had with an atheist biologist in, um, in England who was describing to me how she had a student who uh, indicated that, that she didn't accept, the student indicated that she didn't accept the core principles of evolution, yet she was doing a dissertation, her major project. Uh, I asked her, how, did, how does it how do you deal with uh, having a student who rejects the core organizing principle of your field? And the, basically she worked with the student to work on a project that did not specifically address human evolution. 
And she also ensured that external readers on that project were aware that there might be an issue. So an atheist dealing with a religious student, a famous scientist, I would add, uh, dealing with a religious student who rejected a core principle in the field, who nevertheless worked to accommodate her in her work. And that's sort of an extreme example. The more common ones are, are um, making sure that lab practices and classes don't interfere with prayer and things to that effect. On the other side, if I'm talking about how scientists respond to Muslims, there was uh, one person that I interviewed in the UK who described doing um, a lab experiment. This is it with university students, what we would call undergraduates here in the United States, who misled students, Muslim students, about the um, specimen being used in the experiment because he knew that if he led on to it, that it, they would they would be opposed to it. So you you see good and bad responses to. Uh, Muslims in in the UK in terms of whether scientists accommodate religious beliefs and practices or or whether they um, act in prejudicial ways. Interesting. It sounds like in person, most people are just kind, accommodating people with other people they deal with in person, perhaps. But um, you also have a a special section in this chapter devoted to Richard Dawkins, which probably won't surprise anybody. Um, you explain that while Dawkins is known around the world, of course, for his militant atheism, his work seems to have had a particular impact on his fellow scientists in the in the UK. So what's going on here? So this, uh, one of the, when we think different across the different countries that we're working in, if you think about, well, what are the factors that contribute to identification with the narrative that there's a conflict between science and religion. Well, the U.S. and the U.K. do have these scientists or new atheists who are promoting this view. And we very much think that Richard Dawkins deserves a lot of respect for enhancing public understanding of science. But we learned as we went, went about doing our interviews in the U.K. that we kept seeing Dawkins come up in interviews. And when we started looking more closely at the interviews in which people discussed him, we found that there's a lot of scientists who agree with him. That's true. But there's a lot who are concerned that his comments about science and religion are unproductive for public understanding of scientists. So there's a couple of different themes that are out there. There, There's some scientists who see that Richard Dawkins is simply preaching to the choir. And by that, I, I mean that the people who are listening to him are people who already agree with him and share his view um, about religion. On the other hand, there's others that um, champion his role as a provocateur that is uh, encouraging people to ask questions about religion. And then there's another set of scientists who think that what he's doing is is unproductive. And most notably, this includes not just religious scientists, but other atheists who share his view that there, there is no God or agnostics who say that we can't even know. And some people call him a fundamental atheist. They see him as sort of acting in the same way that you might characterize uh, a fundamental religious person. Let's say others are concerned that he conveys an inaccurate impression of scientists, that all scientists are hostile to religious belief. And then there's another category of people who simply think if the goal of science is in part to enhance public understanding of science, 
or even to attract smart people to science, then it's unproductive to be derisive towards a religious community. In other words, if you're trying to change somebody's mind, uh, then being vitriolic is, is perhaps not the best way to go about it. So th- this is what scientists are saying to us. And, um, and, 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 and it, and ends up being important. We think because we think that someone like Dawkins is important to how the broader public thinks about scientists and how some people might think about religion. And it's true, Carrie, that, um, that everyone, that many scientists mention him. So your original question was, you know, why would we focus in particular on him? It's like our respondents, our scientists respondents told us to, I mean, I remember, um, a interview, one of the early interviews we did in this project where a scientist said to me when I asked him, you know, how he viewed religion and the relationship between religion and science, he says, have you spoken with Richard yet? And I was like, wow, you know, what are, who are we talking about? Usually scientists aren't known by their few, by their first names. And I said, no, I had, and he said, oh, Richard Dawkins, I thought you would have talked to him. So this is a fellow who's so famous, um, Richard Dawkins, that is, that merely the mention of his first name, um, you know, lets everyone know who he is. And so this is someone who's kind of become a symbol of the atheist scientist. And this was just incredibly fascinating to us that scientists themselves um, believed that the public viewed them as being like Richard Dawkins, at least in the way that they talk about religion. And they also um, believed that other scientists were like Richard Dawkins and they were, they, there were perhaps the exception, the atheist scientists we were talking to. So David and I got so interested in this topic and we're actually writing another book on varieties of atheism in science, um, which we're just working on now. So I think there's a lot of work still to be done on that topic. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I want to go next to France, or your next chapter's on France, um, which has the most avidly secular culture out of all of the ones that you looked at uh, for its culture and its politics, and as also the least religious scientific community. And I actually live in Quebec, and I found... um, I found this interesting. I guess I should have known, but I'm not a Quebec native, so I wasn't as aware. Quebec is a very avidly secular uh, place as well. It has its own history of forcefully rejecting religion and kind of coming to that on its own terms. Um, And yet, yeah, France does too. And I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Um, So uh, it's, it is only, it's also only a small group of French scientists that see religion and science as being in conflict, though, which is unusual. So you found that religion does manage to make its way into the French lab, even so. So tell us about this unique context. I think for the listeners, um, David can say more about that in particular. But I think it's, it's worth it to point out that the French conception of separation of church from the state is more to... Um, protect the state from the church, whereas the U.S. conception of separation of church and state is more to protect the church from the state. And that really came out, the sort of the well-known concept of French laïcité really came out in our interviews um, quite a bit. But Dave, go ahead. Um, So in France, uh, yes, this emphasis, the the very specific emphasis that French scientists take away from laïcité is this idea that there's no symbolism, no religious symbol symbolism in any governmental organization. Um, and the reason that this matters, it's not like, you know, so the largest population 
of religious people in France is Roman Catholics. They're at about uh, uh, 42% of the population. But it's not, Catholics uh, are not necessarily displaying religious symbols in how they dress themselves. So really this issue of laicite in France really comes up with respect to Muslims. So France has the largest concentration of Muslims in Europe. And there's also a fair amount of intolerance of of Muslims displaying religious symbols such as hijabs. And so there was a famous uh, law passed down in 2004 that banned the hijab in uh, public schools. And the reason this matters for French scientists is the sense that there should be no displays of religious symbolism in the workplace whatsoever if you work in a governmental organization. In France, most in the United States, most of the basic academic science, basic science that takes place is in universities. In France, it's in an organization called the CNRS, which is the Centre National de Research Scientifique. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is there's the CNRS is often situated in universities. And what happens is scientists are unclear on whether or not um, you're allowed to wear religious symbolism in the workplace. And as far as uh, everything we understand is, is that there's no law against it. But the, um, it, it, and so what happens is that female Muslim women become an object of disdain and discrimination for French scientists because they're seen as violating this principle of laicite. There's an interview that I remember doing with a biologist there who was conducting uh, Skype interviews for a potential lab member to um, join his group. And a woman who was Muslim interviewed and she was wearing the hijab and he talked about how he and his group talked about her as a candidate to join the lab and that although he didn't attribute her rejection specifically to her religion, he made it clear that members of his group thought that um, that her being religious would interfere with work or their ability to sort of um, uh, be themselves. And so this is sort of a, a negative story about discrimination towards Muslim women in, in French science. Um, part of the context of this is within the years preceding our, our study there, uh, there were a couple of terrorist incidents in Nice and then the, the famous Charlie Hebdo incident. So I think some of this is that, that Islam was on the minds of scientists that we were interviewing. So even though there is these concerns about Muslims in, in French science, and even though France is a um, highly secular context, an assertive secularism, we would say, the conflict view is nevertheless at 26%. It's, it's about the same as the U.S. It's not as high as in the United Kingdom. And a majority, about two-thirds of scientists in France, think that the relationship between science and religion is one of independence. So it's interesting. You find these stories of, of, of conflict and discrimination. Nevertheless, uh, conflict is not the prevailing view among scientists in that country. But And I think that's exactly right, um, what David says. I want to make the distinction, too, though, that views on conflict um, do not then tell us the whole story of what's actually happening in universities and laboratories. So, um, 
you know, people might think that science and religion are, say, independent realms. Um, and that then may mean that there's a lot of concern when someone brings religion into the workplace. I'm just um, looking at this one interview from the book where a Catholic postdoctoral researcher in biology um, told us this story about how she has a keychain that was given to her um, that where there is a, the Virgin Mary is on a key fob. And she says, I always feel like I'm going to lose it. So I keep it with me. And I, she said, I remember once that my advisor looked at the keychain, which has the Virgin Mary on it. Then he looked at me like he was astounded by it. Um, he doesn't say anything else either. And he kept it to myself and I didn't say anything else either. So even, you know, a Catholic symbol, there is the sense that there might be concern about displaying something as seemingly innocuous as a keychain in the lab. So, so there's, there's, there's that kind of, you know, one end. And then there's, so imagine someone who has as part of their faith to wear outward religious symbols all the time would feel a special kind of concern that this might be commented on, or that this is perhaps not appropriate in the scientific environment in ways that are very different from the U.S. and even the U.K. And some Catholic scientists would disagree with what I just said. They there are some Catholic scientists I spoke with um, who think that French scientists go bend bend over backwards not to avoid uh, to they they bend over backwards to avoid offending Muslims in in their group by, for example, not serving particular types of food. I remember there was a, a Catholic woman that I interviewed who brought in um, some sort of French, uh, some sort of French cookie that uh, is associated with communion. I think that her son had had um, his first communion and she brought these cookies into her lab and that her colleagues were aghast at the fact that she would dare bring in these <laughs> cookies um, from her son's religious uh, rite of passage. So, all of that to say, yes, there's a lot of attention on Muslims in France, but some Catholic scientists think that, that uh, they are actually a protected group relative to, to Catholic scientists. Can I read it, Dave? I just found the quote. I can't believe this in this um, huge book. So sure. I, um, yeah, so she says, um, she told us the reaction. I'm reading the quote Dave just referenced. She told us all of the reaction she faced after offering her colleagues these candy-coated almonds um, commonly offered at weddings, christenings, and first communions, as he said, in France. She says, I just put them there in the common room where people have coffee. And I said, it's for the communion of my son, that's all. And they accused me of proselytization. Wow. I didn't put anything on it related to religion. I just said it's for people. <laughs> if, if an Asian or a Hindu, she says, if an, if an Asian or a Hinduist um, brought something, they, the, my colleagues might say, oh, it's nice. It's their tradition. But with Christianity and for people who are Jewish, it's difficult. So here's someone who said, who thinks that perhaps for um, traditions, which are the minority religious tradition, people might bend over backward, but um, for uh, majority traditions, they're concerned. So, Right. Fascinating. Let's turn now to Italy. Uh, so this is the home of the Vatican, of course. And so it's not too surprising that you found that in this country, as I, and I'll quote you here, Catholic, Catholicism is everywhere, uh, not only in the architecture, but in their practice of science. So you describe it as a love-hate relationship and note that Italian scientists maintain a distinctively Catholic perspective because they have very little interaction with scientists of other faiths. So this sounds really interesting. I think this one is a fairly unique one in your group. So please tell us about this. Well, one of our colleagues um, quipped here, it's like everybody's Catholic and nobody cares. <laughs> we almost so. thought that might be the title of the chapter for a while. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, so there's perhaps less tension here, 
because most scientists share the same religious affiliation. So there's not um, the same, when there's religious pluralism, there can be either a kind of extreme privatization or a kind of um, more public back and forth about which religion should come out on top. And so in Catholicism, it's like, um, you know, we, we use in the book the image of the fish who's swimming in water and says, oh, what's water, right? Um, so there is this sense where it's everywhere. I mean, I remember interviewing these, this scientist and I asked him if religion came up um, in his life very much and if it came into his scientific work. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm a very committed Catholic, but I would never bring religion into my scientific work. And this is where it's a benefit to actually go to the scientist in their office. This scientist had an enormous Bible in his um, office. Like, um, you know, it's and so it's like, okay, it doesn't come into my scientific work, but yet you have these religious symbols right in your office um, itself. But to you, that's not coming up in your scientific work. So um, there is this kind of sense where it's just part of the water or part of the air. And to put Elaine's points in context, uh, this idea that Italy is extremely homogenous, 58% of scientists in Italy identify as Catholic. That's compared to about 90% of the population. The next largest group are people who identify as religious nuns. They don't affiliate with a particular religion or any at all. And they are at 35%. Um, and I would say just quite personally, uh, when I, I recall going, uh, I, I don't remember the sequence of all of the, the countries that I went to, but um, in the UK and in India um, and France, it wasn't difficult for uh, the, the notion of religion in the workplace to come up. In France, or excuse me, in Italy, it was sometimes less apparent, even even as you know, a, a scientist might have a Bible in their office. And part of the thing that was clear to me about about Italian scientists is they don't care about the relationship between science and religion. There's there's no conflict because there's not much diversity and there's not a Dawkins there. There's a church that's seen as being somewhat progressive on various aspects of religion. The real issue that people are concerned with there is about getting jobs and nepotism. And uh, the only sort of religious wrinkle on, on the nepotism part is that there is a sense among some scientists, specifically in, in Milan, that there's a religious organization that they think actually has influence in science. But this is one of these threads of conversation that we could never verify very well. And so we didn't emphasize it in the book. But uh, my sense from walking away from Italy is that there were other things on the minds of Italian scientists than conflict between science and religion. And we see that in the numbers about two thirds of religious, two thirds of scientists in Italy see science and religion as independent of one another. And only 20% see it as a conflicting relationship. There was a sense though, where um, Catholicism could provide an overarching and commonly noted framework for ethics. Right. I, I don't mean by that, Carrie, that we thought of Italian scientists as more ethical because they're Catholic. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that because they had a common religion, they had something to appeal to, to think about ethical issues that all scientists face. And so that, um, you know, that came out some. 
there was a sense too where they talked about um, beauty in science in kind of religious terminology that was common to Catholicism. So Catholicism provided um, a kind of common grammar for understanding things like ethics and, and beauty, I think is something that's fair to say. Interesting. Okay, so that's what you mean by this distinctively Catholic perspective on science. Um, okay, so let's move on to Turkey. Next we go here, which is the only Muslim country in your yes, study. Yes, your listeners are, you, are, are getting you, a real tour here. I'm saying you're yeah. exhausted from our tour of all these countries, Carrie. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. Did I sound like that? No, 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 no. <laughs> we're just we're just conscious of what a privilege it is to talk to someone who's read the book. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. So Turkey um, and Turkey's unique because uh, it's the only Muslim country in your study, although it is officially secular. Of course, uh, it's been officially secular since 1928, but that separation of church and state has kind of been eroding under President Erdogan. And even more recently, academic freedom has actually been under attack there. So please explain this complicated context for science and religion. Uh, it's the only place um, where we interviewed scientists where the scientists were not were afraid of not being religious enough. Um, and it, that's uh, so interesting. I mean, I when I went there to first do pilot interviews, so interviews that we did with scientists before we fielded the official survey, um, already, and that was now seven years ago, already there was real um, fear of the government concern that um, maybe the scientist would not be perceived as Muslim enough and so then um, not be considered, say, for funding, government-provided funding. So... Um, it was it's it was then and is now of course um, a fraught environment. Yeah, overall, the, the vast majority of Turkish scientists are Muslim, and uh, they're more likely to be religious uh, in science in Turkey compared to scientists in the other nations that we um, that we studied, and they were also the least likely to define religion. In, in negative terms. Um, and overall, uh, let's see. So 61% of scientists in Turkey uh, are, are convinced that God exists and they have no doubts. And that's compared to 93. Um, but there's varying degrees of belief in God. The more interesting thing is that there's only 6.3% of scientists who in, in Turkey who are, are atheists. So in many respects, it was m the most religious uh, context that we studied. And then the other important thing to note about Turkey is that um, it has one of the higher incidents of the collaboration view. So when we ask people to define the relationship between science and religion, one of the options is called collaboration. It's this idea that each can be used to help support the other. And this view comes up um, most prevalently among uh, Muslims who draw on Islamic theology. You would often ask scientists, uh, is, uh, Muslim scientists about the relationship between science and religion. They would quote the, the Quran to point out ways in which they see science and religion as in collaboration with one another. Yeah, very high view of collaboration. I mean, one thing that we've done in some op-eds we've written about the book is just pointed out how 
um, religious scientists in Turkey are. And I think for the, the rest of the world, it's very useful to know that Turkish scientists certainly view themselves as doing the same type of science as anyone else. So it's not like their Islam um, from a scientific point of view has any kind of negative impact on their science and nor would we expect it to. But I think it's useful for internal to Turkey um, to point out in the current political context um, that many Turkish scientists are what they see as faithful Muslims. And so there's there's ways in which I hope our research has um, brought some, some good descriptive data um, to the Turkish context. Okay, so moving on to India, you write that the boundaries between science and religion are fluid and overlapping here more than any other region you studied. So interestingly, while many of the scientists you talk to argue that there's a firm compartmentalization of their religious practice from their science, you felt instead that they are very intertwined in ways that these scientists seem to be missing, maybe even more so than in Italy. So tell us what that's about. So even if print, if in principle, scientists view the relationship between science and religion as one of independence, which 44% of scientists in India do, the, I think that's uh, maybe the hot, one of the higher levels mm-hmm. of independence in, in our, our study. In practice, they nevertheless can overlap. So you can think that they're asking different questions. You can even compartmentalize your own religious beliefs in the work that you do. But nevertheless, there are several dimensions of overlap in um, India science. And so one example of this is what we call institutional sanctioning. And so this is the idea that there's some sort of tacit approval given to religion insofar as it's integrated into something scientific. And so one example that we uncover in the book is opening a scientific conference with a prayer. Another would be um, there's quite often um, uh, prayers that take place before rocket ships are launched into into, uh, outer space from um, Indian physicists. There were examples of prayers that took place at the inauguration of new buildings. There is even one example, and this is just one case, in which a, a new director came into a scientific institute and uh, had a sort of forum with graduate students and was talking about religion. And I think that if you were a scientist in the United States, uh, you would be aghast if somebody prayed at a conference or uh, pulled graduate students aside to talk about religion. And so one example of overlap is this notion of institutional sanctioning. Another uh, perhaps more interesting one is the abundance of festivals that take place in India related to religion. And on one hand, they are both social uh, and religious, but they take place on campus. And so one example of this is called Vishkawarma Puja, which celebrates a revered Hindu god who's thought of as an engineer or an architect or a scientist. And it entails a process of worshiping and cleaning tools and machines on campus. And so it's interesting to, um, to see how Indian scientists would draw these boundaries in principle uh, between science and religion. But in practice, um, religion nevertheless does come up in the workplace. And there were even some scientists that we spoke with who talked about prayer 
in, in the workplace, even though I would not characterize that as all as um, a prevailing practice. And Carrie, I think it shows the real value of these dual forms of data collection where we both survey scientists and then actually go to places. So as David said, you know, scientists may say that these things are completely independent, science and religion that is, but then um, you see that when you go, you see the presence of religion in labs and in um you know, on in inst- very much institutionally sanctioned. And so you, you start to understand that independence has very different meanings um, dependent on science, the national context in which science is being practiced. Yeah, I think that's a really insightful observation. There's more, there's more happening than it might seem on the surface, in other words. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, finally, we go to Hong Kong and Taiwan which are culturally connected but distinct from China, with both striving to become global leaders in science and technology. So let's start with the various religions that we find in these regions. I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that, um, although I will offer the disclaimer that I am by no means an expert on uh, Eastern religion. And, you know, circling back to your early question about how do we have seven um authors on this book. Well, one <laughs> because of, one of them was, or two of them were, were experts, but it, neither of those experts is us. Ex- <laughs> exactly. Our, our colleague, Stephen Lewis, has been studying China for decades and knows a lot about East, the East in general, um, speaks very and strong. Our, and Didi as well. Yeah. Exactly, at Santa Clara University. So what does religion look like in Hong Kong and Taiwan? Uh, in the case of Taiwan, the largest uh, religious group in the population are Buddhists, and they make up about 27% of the population, followed by people who are are Taoists, who make up about 22%. In science, the largest group, uh, they are also the two largest groups after religious nuns. So about 18% of scientists in um, Taiwan are Buddhists, and about 18% are individuals who practice folk religion. Elaine, do you want to say a little bit about um, what folk religion is? And so it's really not one thing. It's um, a collection of, I think, I think it's sometimes better named folk beliefs. And so there's a diverse sets of religions, um, which scholars put under the definition of religion. And there's even debate about what counts as religion um, underneath folk beliefs. Um, but when we did focus groups and pilot interviews with scientists in these national, in these regional contexts, rather, um, we found that they thought of folk beliefs as religion. And so we named it as such. And then in, in Hong Kong, um, it, the population there is more or less comprised largely of religious nuns. About 70% of the population is a, uh, does not affiliate with any religion. And that's actually perfectly mirrored among scientists themselves um, in terms of religious affiliation. Um, The largest group there in the population are Protestant Christians, and they make up about 15% of the population compared to about 13% of scientists. And overall, some of the big takeaways on Hong Kong uh, and Taiwan is that 
by many measures, the scientists are religiously similar to the general publics. And so already that's vastly different than other regions that we study, right? So scientists in the U.S. are uh, much more secular than the, um, than the, than the public. And in, um, and, and in India, they're, um, they're, 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 they mirror the population to a certain extent, but not as much. But in Hong Kong and Taiwan, they're in many ways religiously similar to the general public. From the interviews, one of the things that we picked up on uh, is that there's a freer expression of religion in the workplace among scientists in this region. And um, the other big picture findings is that the conflict view is lower in Hong Kong and Taiwan than any other region that we studied. And in both places, it, the independence view is the most prevalent view among scientists. Another big uh, difference to even amplify what David is saying more, Carrie, is that um, the Hong Kong and Taiwan context of science and relationship to the public is just so different. I really want the listeners to take that away than in some of the other national contexts that we studied. So if we pool all the religious traditions in Hong Kong, um, almost 40% of scientists think of themselves as religious compared to about 20% of the general population. And so we have this situation where a higher proportion of scientists are religious when compared to the general public. And again, that's if you pool all of the religious traditions and look at religion versus non-religion. And or when we asked our scientists to interpret this finding for us, um, they didn't think of it as all that unusual. So they thought of the best um, feeder schools, so primary and secondary schools for science curriculum, as being those schools that are set up, for example, um, by uh, you know Catholic and Protestant um, missionization efforts. And so it was not very surprising to them that you have um, a higher proportion, for example. Um, you know, of Protestant scientists in Hong Kong than you have, um, I'm sorry, you have a higher proportion of um, scientists who are Catholic than you have of scientists of those in the general population who are Catholic in Hong Kong. So there's just some really interesting relationships in these two regional contexts that we really hope other researchers will pick up and run with. And we're continuing to analyze these data even after this book has been finished. But just wonderful context, very rich context to study. Hmm. One thing that I've noticed um, with science fiction coming out of Asia is that you can pick up on the uh, a sense that there is a different attitude towards um towards technology and science uh, in American or Western science fiction, even more generally um, the antagonist is often figured as um, technology run amok technology turned dangerous or threatening or intentionally threatening. Even it becomes personified and comes after people and stuff. And you really don't get that so much in science fiction from uh, various reason, regions in Asia. Um, the conflict will build around something else and technology will be there um, as an aid or in the background or MacGuffins or whatever the case, but it's not as a threatening feature. So I just, uh, that occurred to me as I was reading your findings in Hong Kong and Taiwan. If I could yeah. pop in ahead, here Dave. with another sort of interesting methodological choice. Um, obviously there's a lot of places as Elaine mentioned earlier that we could have attempted to do this study and China was certainly a, uh, a context that came to mind, given the science infrastructure there. 
uh, in another project that we worked on separate from this one that was looking at ethics, we quickly learned that um, scientists in China were not willing to be recorded in interviews. And we ultimately responded by sending two people over and one person would conduct the interview and the other one would do their best to sort of transcribe it. Um, but given the, the, the reluctance of scientists in China to, to feel as if they could speak openly or go on, even though these are all completely confidential um, conversations, they were concerned about their identities being discovered. And so this was not, this would mean we were unable to conduct this study there. Um, but it was one of the many interesting things that, that we discovered in doing cross-national research that shaped our choices uh, focusing on Hong Kong and Taiwan for, for this particular book. Elaine, was there anything else you wanted to add? I don't want to essentialize um, these two contexts, and they're very, very complicated contexts, but I wanted to read a, a passage from um, one of the um, interviews that we did um, with a practitioner of um, folk religion and a scientist in Taiwan who said this, he said, um, he said, I, he says he overcame a dangerous situation he was in in his research by relying on the assistance of the third prince deity. But he said he's never told anyone about this. He also believes the deity intervenes in his academic research articles. And he explained as the deity comes down, he would help me. He would take the ink brush and the cinnabar and he would make edits. And he would be like, look, he wrote this poorly. There's something wrong here. And I would have been a little careless. And once I carefully looked into it, I would discover that I really did make a mistake. So there's this kind of fluidness with, um, and this is a practitioner of folk religion, and uh, Taiwan is incredibly religiously diverse, so this is not every scientist, of course, but there is this kind of fluidity um, between religion and science. So collaboration may mean a different kind of thing. And again, getting back to this point of actually going to a place and interviewing scientists in their own terms in partnership with surveying them, there's a kind of fluidity that's not present as much in the other contexts. Hmm. I'm glad you brought up that story. I remember that one. I thought it was it was really interesting. Um, well, in summarizing, what do you think are the biggest takeaways from your study? I know that's a huge question, but. <laughs> it is a, a huge question. Um, so I think in the most basic sense, um, it's good not to see the relationship between religion and science as as only a matter of what's exactly right. Um, you know, philosophers, ethicists, and theologians do go here and look at religion and science as ideas, but religion and science are embodied as well. So they are part of everyday people's practices. And so that's what we try to do in our study of scientists in different national contexts is go to scientists themselves um, and ask them what they think rather than assuming we know what science is about. And so I think that's just an important principle um, to point out. Um, there is a sense, too, when we do that, of the importance of looking at religion in different um, contexts and moving this entire conversation um, beyond Christianity itself. Um, and I do think, too, that for our listeners, it's important that to, to just stress again for the sake of public conversation that scientists perhaps 
um, globally are more religious than many people are led to believe. So for example, in Italy, in Turkey, in India, and in Taiwan, those are contexts where the majority of scientists identify with a religious tradition. Um, and so that's just important to point out where we have a lot of stereotyping of scientists. I think David said this well, is that stereotyping of scientists in the broader public has very public consequences. And so as researchers, we want to point out where the reality of data show that people's stereotypes about a people group are not, are not accurate. And one of the reasons that that matters in the United States and in um, other countries like the United Kingdom, think about this. 84% of the global population is religious. If you look at um, where scientists in the United States and the United Kingdom Kingdom come from, at least in physics and biology, roughly 45% in the UK and 42% in the United States were born in other countries. And so scientists do come into the United States and the United Kingdom. They're at the core of the global science infrastructure and they bring their religions with them. And, and so this, this point about scientists in, in other countries being more likely to be religious is important because it, it shapes uh, the composition of, of, of science in the United States and the United Kingdom. I would say another big picture takeaway is that if you talk to everyday scientists, and by everyday scientists, I mean graduate students, professors, members of the National Academy, members of the Royal, uh, the Fellows of the Royal Society, there is much less vitriol than toward religion than what we find among new atheists. And, and this is one of the things that's hard to, um, if you're somebody who um, has a normative stance on the relationship between science and religion, which we do not, our goal is to simply describe what we find in our research. But if you're somebody who's interested in changing what dialogue looks like, it's hard because the loudest voices that are out there are have a tendency to, to be anti-religious. Whereas uh, most scientists do not, even among atheists themselves, uh, less than half of atheists think that there's a conflict between science and religion. And I would say that this, this is probably... As somebody who didn't study religion coming into this project and studied primarily scientific work, I think the fact that there's uh, not as much vitriol towards religion as one finds in the public narratives is one of the bigger surprising things, but also one of the biggest takeaways of this study for me personally. So this is another big question, but I'm wondering if it's possible to make any kind of predictions or if you've seen any trend lines in how religion and science uh, may continue to interact around the globe going forward. So certainly, as David pointed out, there is movement of people in the scientific community. So um, many scientists, nearly half in some of the nations that we studied, will need to go outside their home nation to get a job um, in science. And when people move, they bring their religious traditions with them. So I think it remains to be seen whether or not that movement of peoples in the scientific infrastructure will have an impact on the science and religion discussion. 
Um, when you think about in a U.S. classroom that dependent on the university type, there may be 40% of scientists um, who are teaching university students who are not from the U.S. Um, will those scientists um, enlarge and enrich um, the experiences of undergraduates in terms of various ways of intersecting religion and science. I think that really remains to be seen. But one thing to think about in terms of trend is movement of people groups um, only, especially in the science infrastructure, only seems to be increasing, not decreasing. And so what impact um, will that have? And I think secondly, we hope that um, as I think David put it well, that we do not want this to be a normative project, but if others do pick up our research um, and take our accurate descriptions, hopefully accurate descriptions of the scientific community and their religiosity, um, this may dispel some stereotypes that people have about each other, some stereotypes which we believe are deeply consequential. And, and another, I haven't thought of this before, but I would say another trend line going forward is we're actually going to know a lot more about what people actually think in coming years because, uh, you know, history and philosophy for a long time have, had, have, have been the only game in town in terms of how we understand and study science and religion. But increasingly, there's a number of sociologists and, and psychologists who are doing research in this area, and not just in the United States and the United Kingdom, but in other parts of, of, of the world. And so I think um, what the public is able to understand about the various contexts of science and religion will only become more empirically accurate. Okay, well, I think you answered that question pretty well then. Um, Elaine and David, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you again so much for agreeing to come on the show. It's been really fun, really fascinating. But before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Gosh, we have a couple of projects in place. Um, we are together, David and I are writing a book on varieties of atheism in science. And uh, independently, I have a new project on religious victimization and discrimination in the U.S. and another project on how people understand the relevance or irrelevance of their faith to work. Yeah, I, and I would say that, you know, for me, the most one of the more fascinating things that I'm working on, a lot of my work is on higher education policy and things related to allowing concealed weapons on college campuses, responses to sexual assault and free speech issues. Um, but right now, Elaine and I are in the midst of this book on varieties of atheism and science. And I think that um, if you would have asked us before we started this project um, about atheists and scientists, we might not have thought of them as um, a heterogeneous group. We would have said maybe they're just people who simply don't believe in God and might have a tendency to be anti-religious. But as we've dug into survey data and interview data, we're discovering that there are fascinate, there's fascinating variation in what an atheist looks like. Um, and we think that this also matters because, again, um, if you're a member of the public and you think scientist and you think Richard Dawkins, you're going to draw a particular conclusion that may or may not be indicative of what uh, everyday scientists, even those who do not believe in God, actually think. And so a goal of this project is to look at atheists in, uh, let's say, microscopic detail, take a close look at what they think about religion. What do they, if, 
if they don't draw on religious meaning systems, then then in what ways do they construct meaning and what implications do those meaning systems have for morality? And what do they think about the limits of science? Can science explain everything? And that is a fascinating book that we hope will be coming out um, in the next couple of years. And we hope you'll invite us back onto this show to talk about it when it's published. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, I hope you do come back because that sounds fascinating. I really would like to. Um, I recently uh, did a paper on um, on atheism, atheism and doubt in um, fiction. And, oh, very good. Uh, and I started realizing that um, there's a lot, a, a lot being written on um, even contemporary expressions of religion in literature. Obviously, that kind of theme has been going on forever. And I could find almost nothing on atheism and doubt in uh contemporary storytelling, which I find amazing because I look around and see it everywhere. But I did, I, maybe it's a lack of my research skills. I couldn't find much out there. And But what, one of the things I did find is that just as you're saying, atheism is not a monolithic block. There's all kinds of different um, secularisms, I think is, is the term that I found, different ways that people express it, uh, whether it be... Um, some kind of spiritualism idea or, but even, even without the spiritualism, there's, there's all of these different flavors of secularisms. So um, yeah, I would love to talk about that book with you when you guys are ready. So thank you, Carrie. This is giving us a lot of motivation to really keep going with it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's very flattering. Thank all you right. so much for a delightful conversation. Yes, yeah, I so enjoyed talking with you. Me too. It's been really, really fun. I really enjoyed your book as well. I was really glad to have the chance to talk to, with you about it in person. That's one of the, the big perks of this job. So, um, so yes, I will wish, wish you uh, goodbye. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with doctors Elaine Howard Eklund and David Johnson about their new book, Secularity and Science, What Scientists Around the World Really Think About Religion. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. For example, are you a scientist who's religious? Or have you had an experience with a conflict between religion and science? You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland, that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, and let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you à la prochaine. Until my next conversation about New Books in Secularism. Mm-hmm.